The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from Isaiah 9, 1-7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Neptali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as the as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it, and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. Christ. Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Father's Day. Today we are uh, beginning our series in Isaiah. This is going to be our summer series. I wish we could exhaustively cover the entire book. We're just going to take about a dozen or so snapshots of key themes in Isaiah uh, over the course of the summer. Uh, And uh, the subtitle of the series, you might have noticed, is Following God in a Difficult World. Now, speaking of difficult, one of the central figures, uh, not only in Isaiah, but also throughout the Old Testament, as well as in the New, is King David. And uh, embedded right here in this morning's text is a statement that Messiah, or the coming Christ, whom we know as Jesus, will reign on David's throne. Now, David, among other things, had a very tough dad story. Uh, If you're familiar with that uh, incident in 1 Samuel 16 where where God sent the prophet Samuel to the home of a man named Jesse. Now, Jesse and his wife had seven sons, and the instructions from the angel of the Lord to the prophet was, among the sons of Jesse is going to be the next king. The the successor to King Saul is one of Jesse's sons, so go there. I will show you when you get there who it is. And then one after another, Jesse presents six of his sons to the prophet Samuel, and each one, the answer from the Lord is, no, this is not the one, this is not, this is not the one. And after they go through those six, Samuel says, is this all the sons that you have? And Jesse says, well, uh, there's still one more. And our English translations say the youngest is out tending to the sheep. The original Hebrew, uh, the, the most pure translation of the word is the runt is out tending to the sheep. So you get a sense of, of, of maybe a contempt that Jesse felt for the youngest son. Maybe he was an unwanted child. Maybe he was, who knows. But, but, but what we do know is that Jesse was 
neglectful, dismissive, and, and at least a little bit contemptuous toward the young David. We find out in Psalm 27, which was a prayer that, that David wrote, that it wasn't only his father but also his mother who had abandoned him. We're not sure the details around that, but it's something that he writes about in that prayer. David had experienced other betrayals like, you know, King Saul. The, the, the thanks that King Saul gave David for defeating Goliath and, and saving the Israelites from, from the Philistines, the, the, the thanks that he got from the king was that, that from that point forward, the king felt jealous of David because David was popular uh, for defeating Goliath. And, and so he put hitmen on David and he tried to kill David himself on several occasions. And uh, if that weren't enough, later on in David's life, uh, his son Absalom uh, rises against him, resents him, publicly, publicly humiliates him, and then tries to take over the throne from him, stages a, you know, what we know as a coup d'etat. And uh, so there's David, but there's also Isaiah, who's the writer of this prophecy, and Isaiah writes himself from a backdrop of pain as well. Uh, there's national pain that is referred to all over the prophecy of Isaiah, uh, words in this text that he uses to describe the experience of Israel at this time are words like gloom, contempt, and darkness. Uh, he also had a lot of personal pain. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to uh, explore uh, Isaiah chapter 6 and that occasion when God called Isaiah to be a prophet. And the nature of the job description that God gave to Isaiah was this, you're going to preach my word faithfully for the rest of your life, and there's not going to be a single person who respects you for it. You're going to be opposed, you're going to be rejected, and eventually you're going to be killed for doing what's right. And, um, and so, in this context of, of what Isaiah calls gloom and contempt and darkness, he says there's one answer. It's the everlasting Father. The everlasting Father. And, and uh, there's about a thousand things that, that, that we could draw out of this text, but I've only got time for four today. And uh, it's these. It's various aspects of the everlasting Father, His reassuring perspective, his protective strength, his anchoring joy, and then his optimistic zeal. So let's, let's go through those one by one. First, his reassuring perspective. The everlasting Father's reassuring perspective. He is referred to here by the prophet Isaiah as counselor. Now, if any of you have ever worked with a counselor, or maybe some of you, I know some of you are counselors, a counselor is somebody who helps you see things as they really are, and to get healthy with reality, okay? So, God is someone who helps us to see things as they really are and to help us get healthy with those realities. If we go over to the 55th chapter of Isaiah, it says that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. And, uh, you know, like the, the, the great Reformed theologian Cornelius von Till said, we have to learn to think God's thoughts after him. Or, or as it says uh, in, in something that the Apostle Paul wrote uh, to the Corinthians, uh, our job as believers, at least part of our job as believers as children of God, is to learn to take every thought of ours captive and surrender it to obedience to, to Jesus Christ. And so, 
one of the things that Isaiah is after is to help the people of God think in the way that a healthy counselor, a wonderful counselor, would want us to think, especially in times of turmoil and difficulty. But first, Albert Camus. Camus was an existentialist philosopher. He wrote uh, what has become a famous uh, essay called The Myth of Sisyphus. And in that essay, he says that there is a man, and he's a working man, and he has a day off, a cherished day off, and he's got all these plans to really enjoy that day off from work. And then at the very beginning of the day, a strange man breaks into his house and puts a gun to his head and says, I am going to shoot you today. And there's nothing you can do about it, but I am a benevolent, kind, generous killer. And so I'm going to give you two hours to enjoy your, the, what, what time you have remaining, two hours to do whatever you want to the fullest of your enjoyment. And, you know, Camus goes on, and, and, and essentially he, he says, well, well, of course, that taints every experience, knowing that you're going to die, knowing that you're going to get capped in the head in, in a couple of hours. It doesn't matter how good the espresso is. It doesn't matter how invigorating the jog is or how beautiful the day is and how lovely the sunshine or the painting or whatever it is that you decide to enjoy during that two hours. In, in fact, the better the thing is, the more it's going to mock you because you know that you're going to lose it and you're going to be gone very soon. And what, what this is, is Camus' attempt at a metaphor to describe the situation that we are all in. There is a gun to our head. The mortality rate is one person for every one person. And according to Camus, who did not have the prophecy of Isaiah in his heart, according to Camus, that means that everything is meaningless for everyone. And we can either deny it until it catches up with us and then eventually undoes us, or we can just admit it and live honestly and be despairing. You know, in verse 1, Isaiah talks about gloom, anguish, and contempt brought specifically on two cities called Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, these two cities were the two cities that were hit the hardest and demolished uh, most severely when the great world power Assyria, with their scorched earth policy, came in and, uh, and ransacked these two cities of, De of Zebulun and Naphtali, took their goods, enslaved their people. And so he says that, uh, Isaiah does, that, that these cities are going to be redeemed. They're going to see a great light and so on, and they're going to experience healing from this disaster. And then in verse 4, he, he says that the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, is going to be broken on the day of, as in, as in on the day of Midian. Okay, so, so in other words, God's going to do to Assyria what God did to Midian. Now, that's a, that's a reference back to Judges chapter 7, where, where a, an Israelite general named Gideon was tasked with fighting against the armies of Midian. Now, what God did with Gideon was he reduced Gideon's army down to 300 men. 
And those 300 men were the weirdest of all of the soldiers because they were the ones who drank like dogs. They didn't use cups. They didn't cup water in their hands. They just, they just, just licked water up like dogs. Those are your guys, Gideon. Those are the ones that you need to, to, to now fight against this army of Midian. By the way, how many troops did Midian have? 12,000. 300 weirdos against 12,000 well-equipped mighty soldiers. And what happened was that through the power of God, the small and the weak and the scared, the 300 defeated the 12,000 without having to lift a single weapon out of its case. God won the victory. This is, this is the wisdom of God the Father, the everlasting Father that, that, that Isaiah is trying to weave into our experience as well. God says, God's wisdom says that the advantage goes to the underdog. I think you know that. I think you felt that even as you cheered for the special needs video that we saw. There's something inside of us that knows that the most disadvantaged among us are actually the ones who are the most elevated in the heart and mind of God. That is what causes our souls to rise up within us when we see something like what we saw. And we, when we celebrate something like we celebrated, the advantage goes to the underdog. Living in darkness, there's going to be a great light. Living in defeat, you're going to eventually be the winner. You're going to divide the, divide the spoil. You're going to have joy. And, you know, later on, and this is going to be kind of the nexus of our whole series, in the, in, in the, in the later chapters of Isaiah, there's this long uh, section about what Isaiah refers to as the suffering servant. And, of course, it's a, of course, it's a precursor to Jesus Christ. It's a description of the Messiah who would come. He is both the king who reigns forever, as today's text reminds us, and he is despised and rejected and humiliated. You know, think about it. I mean, we know this. He was born in a stable in a town that was regarded as insignificant by society to, to parents who were poor. He lived his whole life at the bottom of the food chain, ec educationally, politically, economically, and socially. And what is the outcome of his life? What is the result of his life? Well, right now, over 2,000 years later, 30% of the whole world, 30% of over 7 billion people have surrendered their lives to Him. And that percentage keeps growing. And here we are on Father's Day in 2019 in Nashville, Tennessee, gathering together to worship Him. You know, Walker Percy was asked why he became a Christian and his answer was, because Israel exists. And there's no earthly reason why Israel should exist. They should have been eliminated in Pharaoh's Egypt. They should have been gone. But they grew and grew and grew. And then they spent 40 years exiled into the wilderness. So they should have died there. Then there was Herod's genocide. Then there was Hitler's holocaust. And there is still, even now, all the anti-Semitism that, 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 that exists all over the world, even in our own 
nation, as we've discovered on both the East and the West Coast and the shootings that have taken place in synagogues just this last year. And yet, in many pockets of the world, Jewish people are incredibly strong and resourceful and industrious and, and leaders. Same could be said of the Christian church. You know the whole Bible was written either by a slave, a refugee, a minority, a person in prison, or somebody who was being oppressed. Like the whole Bible. Every book of the Bible was written by somebody who fits one or more of those descriptions. And here we are, esteeming it, revering it, aligning our lives around it, opening it up together every week, opening it up hopefully as close to every day as possible in our private lives. Here is the reassuring perspective that is ours as well to lay hold of. The advantage still goes to the underdog, or as Chesterton, Chesterton said, Christianity is the religion of little things. There's this reassuring perspective, but there's also his protective strength. So, Midian, the, the reference to Midian in Judges 7 is just a small example of how God, through history, has always defended defeated kids from bullies. Isaiah itself is composed with the backdrop of, of two invasions. I've already talked about the Assyrian invasion in 722 B.C. There was also the Babylonian invasion that would later take place in 586 B.C. These are two massive empires, Assyria and Babylon, who would attack and, and, and seek to destroy the people of Israel. And this brings me to the second reason why Walker Percy said he became a Christian because there are no more Hittites. Israel exists, and the Hittites, the, you know, Israel, the, the weak, you know, nation still exists and, and, and continues to grow. And, 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 and the Hittites, who has met a single Hittite? Walker Percy says. You could ask the same question about Midianites, who has met a single Midianite, or a single Assyrian, or a single Babylonian, or a single Roman for that matter, who has met anyone from these great empires? They're gone. They're gone. He will reign on David's throne, and of the increase of his government there will be no end. And there's nothing any great world power can do about it. It's like Carl Sagan said, the earth is just a, a pale blue dot suspended in the beam of a mediocre star that we call the sun. God could take our entire planet and just go like that and we would be gone. He will reign. 1 Corinthians 1.27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Eventually, that gun's going to be to my head, it's going to be to your head, and that gun's going to be taken away. And, and the person or the thing that is holding that gun is going to be crushed and replaced by unending joy. It's the truth. So, number three, his anchoring 
joy. In verse 3, we see the beginning of the language of increase. He, he talks about an increasing joy on the basis of an increasing government or reign that's going to be on the shoulders of Jesus. And he's the king not only of a country, he's the king of the universe. As Abraham Kuyper has said, of every square inch, he looks at it all and he says, it's all mine. This language of increase is also spoken of in the past tense. God has increased our joy. He's speaking of it in the past tense, in a season of oppression and sorrow and darkness. He's saying, we've got joy, and it's growing in the midst of all of this. Why? Because His name shall be called Wonderful. The everlasting Father is also wonderful. Even in the valley, there's a joy to be had. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, you need fear no evil, for His rod and His staff are there to comfort you and restore your soul. What Isaiah is saying is that God is setting into motion a reversal of the Sisyphus story, a reversal of Camus' narrative about the two hours that we have left and everything that we enjoy just mocking us because we know it's all going to be over soon. These two hours or whatever it is, 20 years, 40 years, 70 years of gloom, sadness, darkness, injury, betrayal, and frustration. Okay, raise your hand if, if, if you've ever felt any of those things in your own experience. Gloom, sadness, darkness, injury, betrayal, frustration. Raise your hands if you've ever felt anything that fits that description. It is the universal human experience. There will be an everlasting reversal. Those hands will go down. Every hand, every hand will go up later on when the question is asked, for whom has this thing been resolved by the everlasting Father and the Prince of Shalom? Every hand will go up. Everlasting reversal, as Jeremy Casella says, you know, death in reverse. in the place of gloom and anguish and everlasting Father. By the way, like we have all these ideas about what heaven will be like. Oh, you know, in heaven I'll finally be rich. I'll finally have the house I want. I'll, you know, I'll finally, you know, not have to weed the yard. You know, I'll finally be able to eat whatever I want and not worry about consequences. I'll, I'll finally have relational harmony with everybody I love. I'll finally find it. Those are all going to be there, but those are all so very secondary to, to, to the real, you know, sort of central theme uh, and basis for joy, and that's God Himself. He is your portion. He is your share. He is your inheritance. The reason why we worship, the reason why we emphasize, look, if I have a goal, by the way, around the subject of worship, if I have a goal, it's, it's, let's say I have 15 more years here, in 15 years you will not be able to tell the difference between a worship service in the middle of July and Easter Sunday at Christ Presbyterian Church. Because our people have so come to value and cherish and understand their need to be here with the people of God. And even when you're on vacation, to find another place where you can do the same. Because you need this. Because you've come to discover. You've come to believe. You've come to embrace that this is the fiber and the vitamins and the nourishment for your joy. Where we all start to show up early, you know we sing before the sermon. It's, it's really, I think, one of the best things we've got going. 
You should come sometime. <laughs> Truly. And that's, that's not a shame statement. It's really not. I'm not, I'm not here to shame anybody. Um, but you kind of rob yourself of something when you come just for the sermon or just for the benediction. Um, you're kind of robbing yourself of something. You're also robbing the rest of us because we actually love to be right next to you as we sing. And as we hear the Scriptures, we love being next to you, and we feel we are missing something when you're not there with us. So, the other part is what we're here to do is, is the key to an inflamed soul. You know, C.S. Lewis in Reflections on the Psalms talks about praise as, as sort of this gateway to joy. This is this thing that we have to have in our lives to get to joy. You know, Lewis writes, the world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praise most, while the cranks and misfits and malcontents praise the least. The healthy man can praise even a very modest meal. The snob finds fault with everything. Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. We come here to experience from one another inner health made audible. When something elicits wonder, it's true, isn't it, that you cannot completely enjoy that thing until you've shared it, either with another person or a whole community of people. You see a gorgeous sunset, you've got to find somebody and say, look, come out here and look, or a beautiful painting, look at this, or, or the smile on a baby's face, look at this, or listen to this song, it's incredible, it's glorious, or, 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 or listen to this sermon or this address, read this, no you've got to read this novel, you've got to high-five me because our team just won on a buzzer shot, right? We, we have to share those things in order for our enjoyment to be complete and full. So, 30-day challenge. Wherever you are, on vacation in Nashville, Tennessee, go to church every Sunday, show up 10 minutes early, leave 10 minutes after the benediction. Start today. Secondly, Google Westminster Shorter Catechism question number four. Commit it to memory Rehearse it to yourself slowly every morning and every evening, every day for 30 days. The question is, what is God? And the answer is, God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, His wisdom, His power, His holiness, His justice, His goodness, and, and, and His truth. Did you notice the mental discipline of Isaiah in this text where he is very calculatingly naming various attributes and features of God? This is where your joy is going to be found. This is where your health and wholeness is going to be found. This is where your flourishing is going to happen with God. So know who He is, and He is all of these things, and He's each of these things. Be enthralled with God by yourself. Be enthralled with God with us. And see if after those 30 days, you might be walking a little bit lighter and with a little bit more hope and with a little bit more confidence, and with a little bit more certainty. And I love that lyric from Sander McCracken, 
where she says, this is okay, and so I know, this, or this is not okay, so I know that this is not the end, because in the end, everything is going to be okay. So this is not okay, and so I know that this is not the end, and that's what brings us to our last thought. The everlasting Father's optimistic zeal, we might call it also His sure and certain and impactful zeal. He speaks in the past tense, the people in darkness have seen a great light, and then He speaks in the future tense, His name shall be called. He's bridging the past and future, He's bringing them all together into the present moment. The past is so certain that it's spoken of that way, just like Ephesians says, you have already been seated in the heavenlies at the right hand of God in Christ. You're already there with Christ. Like, it's so certain, that's so certain to be your future if you believe in Jesus Christ, that, that it's already done. You know, like, if, if, if I ask you a favor and you say to me, consider it done. Well, you haven't already done it yet, but in your mind, in your heart, it has. I can wipe it off my plate. I can wipe it out of my mind because you've said, consider it done. It just treat it as if it's already happened. That's what the Bible's telling us here. That's what Isaiah is saying. Consider it done. We have seen a great light. Well, wait a minute. We're in gloom and darkness. The light won't come for hundreds more years in the birth of Christ. And even then, it'll be hard to discern that light. And yet, the light has already come. Future is so certain that it's past tense. The future is so real we can already feel it. There is an everlasting Father. The best things in this, this life, the best thing you'll ever experience is a pointer. Don't ever make it the point. Don't ever make an aspect of God's creation or a gift from God the point of your life. It is all a pointer to Him. And the most broken and most difficult things in your life those things have expiration dates. Those things have a shelf life. Those things will be replaced because with Jesus, with this everlasting Father, the key is in the word everlasting. Your best days are always before you and never behind you. And then he's the Prince of Peace, or this is the Hebrew word shalom. And when we hear the word in our kind of Western American context, the word peace, we think of an inner tranquility. Uh, maybe we think of the eagles, you know, peaceful, easy feeling. And, you know, those things are part of it. Those are sort of, you know, byproducts of the kind of peace that God talks about. But, but, but God's peace, God's shalom is so much bigger than, than just us feeling peaceful on the inside. Did you know when John 3.16 said, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that the word there in the Greek is cosmos? God so loved the cosmos. He so loved the galaxies. He so loved the universe. He so loved everything that's ever been created for infinite days. He so loved it. People, places, and things to life. That's the future of the world and the future of the universe. That's what peace means. Spiritually, relationally, vocationally, economically, God is going to reclaim everything. And you get to be part of it if you believe in Jesus Christ. If you've anchored everything, all of your hope, all of your aspirations, all of your dreams, all of your sorrows into the one who loved you and gave himself for you. I'm going to close with this most encouraging reality, His always expanding reign. You know, your person gets into government, into the Oval Office, you get eight years at best. And they're probably not going to accomplish everything that you hope they will. 
This one will accomplish everything and then some. This one has no term limit. This one is the only governor worth putting your hope in. Of the increase of his government, which will be on his shoulders, there will be no end. Okay, I'm going to close with a couple of quotes. The first is from one of my predecessors here at Christ Pres, Ray Ortland, who I think has written one of the most masterful commentaries on the book of Isaiah that has been written uh, in our modern time. And reflecting on this passage, Ray writes, Jesus will not come back to tweak this problem and that. He will return with a massive correction of all systemic evil forever, of the increase, forever ascending, forever enlarging, forever accelerating, forever intensifying. There will never come one moment when we will say, this is the limit. God can't think of anything new. We've seen it all. No, the finite will experience ever more wonderfully the infinite, and every new moment will be better than the last. Isn't that beautiful? It's also true. And then Eugene Peterson, I, I, I know the message is kind of a paraphrase, kind of a translation, but I think that this is the most accurate English translation of this particular uh, Scripture. He doesn't say Prince of Peace, lest, you know, he risks us interpreting it through our Western you know, understanding of, well, peace is like the peaceful, easy feeling. It's so much more than that. Peterson says this, that he will be called the prince of wholeness. His ruling authority will grow, and there will be no limits to the wholeness that he brings. What a wonderful thought. So, after the Lord's Supper, we are going to affirm all of these truths with praise. We're going to use these words, He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and wonders of His love. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. This beloved hymn from Isaac Watts is giving us an opportunity to experience a little bit of Christmas in June, because why not? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, everlasting Father, wonderful Counselor, Prince of Shalom, Prince of Wholeness, with Your reassuring perspective and your, perspective, your, your, your protective strength, Your anchoring joy, Your optimistic zeal, we worship You. You are infinite, eternal, unchangeable in your being, your wisdom, your power, your holiness, your justice, your goodness, your truth. You are the one who defeats 12,000 with 300 weirdos who don't even draw a sword because you choose the weak things. Israel exists and the Hittites do not because you favor the underdog. And we are all so grateful for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.